Grace you in peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Our sermon text for our meditation this morning is our epistle lesson recorded for us in the letter to the Hebrews, the 12th chapter, beginning at the 18th verse. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to burning fire, to darkness, to gloom, to a raging storm, to the sound of a trumpet, and to a voice that spoke. Those who heard the voice asked that not one more word be added, because they could not endure what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to tens of thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people who have been made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new testament, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Dear fellow redeemed, in our recent family vacation, we toured some eight national parks in Colorado, Utah, and Arizona. And I'd have to say that out of all of those national parks that we went to, my favorite was Zion in southern Utah, Zion National Park. In particular, a certain hike that we did there, Angel's Landing. If you've ever heard of Angel's Landing, it's uh, one of the most strenuous and difficult hikes in all of the national park system. It takes up a, some 1,500 foot uh, ascension up the trail over the course of about two and a half miles. And the very end of the trail takes you along a very narrow ridge that's only a couple dozen feet wide. And it has steep drop-offs on either side, maybe about a 1,000 foot sheer drop-offs either side, with only a chain to hold on to along the trail. Well, my family and I weren't originally planning to go up Angel's Landing, but while we were in the park the day before, on a whim, my wife and I decided to apply for a special permit. So that shows you how difficult this trail was. It took a special permit. The next day, we, we actually got the permit, and we got up early in the morning, left the kids in bed, and the two of us went out on our hike. Oh, I will say it was quite difficult to make our way up that mountain. And when we finally got to the point where we began that, that ridge to head out to Angel's Landing, we thought, well, it looks pretty steep and pretty dangerous, and it's going to be pretty tiring, but, you know, it's not that far in the distance, so we think we'll make it just fine. Well. We hiked and hiked and held on to our chain and we got to the peak. We soon realized that wasn't the peak. That wasn't the, the angel's landing that everyone was going to. It was only a small stop along the trail. In fact, that peak had blocked out the view of the true peak, which was far in the distance. And as we looked, to our dismay, we saw people hiking up this tiny little trail to get to the true peak, angel's landing. So as tired as we were, we, we kept going. In some ways, uh, my experience with my wife there in Zion National Park at Angel's Landing res- reminds me of a phenomenon in mountaineering known as false summit. And this can take place when somebody's hiking up a mountain and they, they think that this part of the mountain in front of them is the summit because it looms so large in their eyes and it could seem greater than the true summit. And so They make their way up that peak, not realizing it's not the real summit of the mountain. 
Well, there's hikers that can do such a thing like us and maybe kind of be thoroughly disappointed when they get to the top. But for others, it can be very serious. Maybe they can run out of supplies or they can grow so tired that they'll never make it to the true summit, the true peak of the mountain. In God's word before us today, we hear about two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And God would have us recognize that Mount Mount Sinai is kind of like one of those false summits. And many individuals, sometimes Christians even, will try to make their way up Mount Sinai to have a good relationship with God, ultimately through his law. But he reminds us in his word today, especially as we live out our lives of, of Christian faith, to realize that the only way we can approach God is through Zion, through Mount Zion, and to understand our place there. To really see that our motivation for Christian living is found in that relationship with God that we have only on Mount Zion. So this morning we take up the theme, live the Christian life knowing where you stand, ultimately knowing that we stand before God on Mount Zion. Our lesson for today begins with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. As we think about them coming out of Egypt as God rescued them, he brought them to this area that they were supposed to stand at the foot of the mountain as Moses was to head up the mountain. And God made his presence known there with, with fire and smoke and, and large sounds of a trumpet and all such things with, with the, the shaking of the mountain as well. And it was certainly terrifying to the people. Not only this, as God gave his commands to Moses, his Ten Commandments, and he said that he was establishing a covenant with them that if they obeyed his law, they would be in a good relationship with him. He would be their God and they would be his people. But ultimately, as we see today, that law too was terrifying. In fact, they not wanting to hear another word of God as they recognized the seriousness of God's commands and their own inability to keep his commandments. A number of years ago, a group of Protestant youth, about 7,000, took a survey from a variety of denominations, and they were asked a number of statements concerning the Christian faith. One of them was this, the way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. More than 60% agreed. Another statement, God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. Almost 70% agreed. Another statement, the main emphasis of the gospel is on God's rules for right living. More than half agreed. Maybe quite surprising to us, isn't it? As we think about Christians, aren't we taught from little on that we are saved by grace through faith and not by our works? And yet, we see from the example of those youth that many of them seem like they were placing their trust somewhere else. And there's a great danger for us, even as Christians today, to do the same thing, to maybe think that our relationship with God is based on what we do rather than what God has done for us. And I think a, a big reason for that is because it's often the way of the world, isn't it? That if you try to do your best, if you work hard, usually you are going to be rewarded, right? That's not the way it works with God. I want you to imagine that you were driving down the road one day, and all of a sudden you get pulled over by a police officer, and you didn't think that you'd done anything wrong. 
And the police officer comes up behind you, and uh, he walks up alongside your car and you say, well, officer, what did I do wrong? What's going on? He informs you, I pulled you over because you were speeding. And you say, what? I, I didn't realize I was speeding. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yes, you were going one mile over the limit. How would you respond? I think many of us would be quite shocked. One mile over the limit, I mean, is, is that really a serious offense, officer? In fact, some of us might get angry. Well, what about those other people that I saw speeding by me earlier? Why didn't you pull them over? Or maybe, well, do you, officer, always drive the speed limit even when you're off duty? You maybe try to make such arguments to the police officer, trying to get him to cut us a little bit of slack when it comes to the law. But even according to our own civil law, a police officer would have every right to pull us over for even going one mile over the limit because it's a violation of the law. In a way, that kind of reminds us of God's strictness when it comes to his law. You know, there's sometimes when we want to say, well, God certainly will cut me some slack, right? If I say a curse word, he'll understand that I did it because I was angry, right? Or, or maybe if I have a thought of lust or of hatred, he understands that, that I'm a weak human being. As long as I try my hardest to obey his word, obey his law, he'll look favorably on me and consider me right and good in his sight. But God is not like us when it comes to his law. God does not simply say, try your hardest or, or do your best, the best that you can. He says, be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In fact, before our lesson for today, in the same chapter, it says, Be holy, and without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's really the strictness that God's law requires. And we see it even in our lesson for today, is that God told the children of Israel that nothing was to touch his holy mountain, Mount Sinai, and that even if an animal touched that mountain, it was to be stoned to death. We might say, come on, God. It's just a dumb animal. It doesn't know what it's doing. Cut it some slack. Maybe it reminds us as well of another story in the Bible. If you recall that time when the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by a foreign nation and as it was being brought back to God's holy city, on the journey there, it was on top of a cart pulled by oxen. And at one point, the oxen stumbled, and the Ark of the Covenant was about to slide off of that Ark, and a man by the name of Uzzah reached out his hand to keep that Ark from touching the ground. What did God do? He struck him dead. He struck Uzzah dead because he disobeyed his command. His command said that no one should touch the Ark except the priests that God had designated for that specific purpose. Terrifying to think about how exacting God is when it comes to his law. Even in that case, of this individual that wanted to do something good and right, he wasn't acting in a selfish way, but because he acted in violation of God's law, God's judgment came upon him. It's terrifying to think about. That's the way it is if we try to come before God on Mount Sinai and try to stand before him and come into his presence through the Old Covenant. We try to make ourselves right before God by obeying his commands, thinking that through that, that we're going to have a good relationship with him. God's law and his word tells us and shows us how impossible that is. Really, we see that trying to get to God through Mount Sinai is really like that full summit. We'll never get there. Instead, we need to seek 
God, Zion. The New York City Harbor, there's the very famous Statue of Liberty, a beacon for freedom for the entire world, especially as a symbol for freedom and for immigrants inviting them to our nation. Some of you probably are very familiar with the poem that's written on her pedestal called The New Colossus. The end of that poem reads this. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she. With silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shores, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. In essence, that poem is telling the world, well, you old world countries, keep your royal, keep your wealthy, keep your upright. Instead, bring your downtrodden, bring your broken, bring your lowly, for I offer them freedom and prosperity. In a sense, God really calls the same thing out to us and to the world. But he doesn't desire those who consider themselves upright. He doesn't want the self-righteous he wants those broken, the sinful, the guilt-ridden. He desires those to come to him, to know that in him and in his Savior, he provides true freedom and forgiveness. You know, the writer to the Hebrews mentions in the second portion of our text, Mount Sinai, or Mount Zion, excuse me. We might wonder what exactly is that. Well, first of all, we think about Mount Zion in this way. In the Old Testament, it was one of the mountains where David established his capital city of Jerusalem. And so Zion has been often a term that refers to Jerusalem and that city. Even as the city expanded to other mountains, that term Zion was still used for Jerusalem. It's interesting to think about as God's people took the land and as that city was established, God also said that he would make his presence known among his people in Jerusalem, in Zion, specifically at the temple, above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And yet this wasn't a terrifying thought for the people that God's presence was among them in Jerusalem, but a comforting thought. They could be comforted knowing that they were in a right relationship with God. And why was that? Well, it was because at the temple, sacrifices were made day in and day out by the priest for their sins. God commanded his people to offer sacrifice, that the blood of animals had to be shed to atone for their sins. In fact, just three chapters before our lesson for today, the writer to the Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It shows what God requires to make man right with him. The shedding of blood, sacrifice is required. And yet the writer of the Hebrews in his 10th chapter also says that the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. As many sacrifices were made on the altars at the temple, as many of those were made, none of them could ever truly atone for the sins of God's people. After all, we think about those sacrifices having to be made day in and day out continually for the people's sin. But those sacrifices did point the people forward to another one who would come to Zion, who would come to Jerusalem a great and holy priest who himself would not have to offer sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. God's Son, Jesus Christ, he would come one day to Jerusalem 
And he would offer himself on the cross for the sins of the entire world. He would offer his perfect record, his perfect life, his perfect obedience to God's law with the stringency that God's law required. Jesus fulfilled it all. And in offering his life on the cross, he was offering it as a sacrifice for all sinners, for all guilt-ridden, for you and for me once and for all. How can we know that it was once and for all? How can we know that that sacrifice was ultimately accepted by God for our sin? We look especially to the resurrection of the dead, don't we? The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day when God raised him to life to show that he accepted that sacrifice as payment in full for you and for me. We think about how that sacrificial system is all gone now, right? There's no more sacrifices being offered in Jerusalem, are there? Because Christ offered his life once and for all for you and for me at Zion. But also in the New Testament, Zion is picture is a picture given to us, especially as we see in our lesson today, of heaven, don't we? It says this in verse 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to tens of thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all to the spirits of righteous people who have been made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. As Zion is used in the scripture also as a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, where God makes his presence forever. It describes there as God as the judge, doesn't it? Yet who else is there? God's people are there. The church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. They don't have to be terrified of God anymore. And why not? Again, it's because of the mediator, the mediator of a new covenant, of a new testament, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for all, that all who trust in Christ know that they have that place with God in his presence forever in heaven. Ultimately, all of this gives us the motivation to live out our Christian lives here on this earth. You know, in this 12th chapter of the Hebrews, even as we talked about last week in Pastor Weekman's sermon, God was encouraging us there to endure suffering, knowing that he disciplines those that he loves. And right before our text for today, God encourages us to live in peace and he encourages us to live in holiness. Why should we want to do those things? Why should we want to endure suffering? Why should we want to live in peace and holiness before God? It's not as a way to earn our place and position in God's sight, but because we know that we already have that place, that we already are heirs of eternal life forever in heaven, in that new Jerusalem, that heavenly Zion. That motivates us to endure suffering. That motivates us to live a life in obedience to his commands, in thankfulness for all that he has done for us, and knowing that we can always stand in God's presence because of what he has done for us in Christ. You know, that day in Zion National Park, when my wife and I finally made it to the top of Angel's Landing, we looked behind us and we saw that lower peak that we thought was the summit. And I will say it looks so small and so low in comparison to the actual summit when we arrived at it. That first summit maybe had some nice views to look at, but nothing compared to Angel's Landing had almost a 360-degree view of the entire canyon below. It was quite amazing. Yes, I, as I mentioned earlier, I consider Zion National Park to be my favorite of the national parks. 
But God encourages us to remember that we can come into his presence at Zion, not Zion National Park, but Mount Zion, as we consider Jerusalem and especially the heavenly Jerusalem. And we have the right to come into God's presence because what he has done for us in Christ, who has offered his life as a sacrifice for all, that only through Christ can we come before God, that perfect judge, knowing that we stand right in his sight because Christ has paid for all of our sins and has lived out that life for us. And in him, he has covered us with his holiness and his righteousness. This may God help us as we continue to live out our Christian life here on this earth, knowing where we stand on Mount Zion, trusting in Jesus as our Savior. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore.